walking. Today I'll discuss my return to live poker. The second half of this episode recaps two sessions I played in the San Diego area in late September before the LA area casinos reopened. Right now I'm playing in some bigger games in LA, but I'll wait until the next episode to discuss those. First though, I'll be joined by Peter Olson. Olson is the author of The Only Way to Play It, a new novel on Arbitrary Press about a New York professional poker player who's recently married and had a daughter, and who's now struggling to get by. Much like Rounders, it's one of those rare works of fiction about poker that feels real. Peter Olson, thanks for joining us on Third Man Walking. My pleasure. You've written a lot about gambling, uh, for example, in your book, The Vig, which is a memoir about your beginning a promising career as an author and then becoming a bookie. How did you become interested in the gambling world and how does poker fit into that? Well, there is some history of, <clears throat> of gambling in my family. My uh, grandfather on my mother's side was uh, something of a, of a compulsive gambler. Uh, and got himself into various uh, bits of trouble along the way. I, I like to think that that particular gambling gene was not passed along. So, so my gambling gene is is not what I would consider compulsive, and I've never gotten myself into any real jams on account of it. And and I've never even been particularly attracted to any table games or or. Uh, games where the house has an edge poker has really been you know the one enduring passion in my life and that began uh, at a very young age uh, my my dad uh, who was a uh, a struggling playwright had a bunch of theater friends and they they had sort of very social uh, small stakes games you know five and ten cent games and when I was Ten years old, I I sat in on one of those games. I thought, well, I think I started sitting on my dad's lap and and watching him play. And even at that young age, it it was obvious to me that he wasn't a a very good player himself, and I had a better instinct for for what to do than he did. And pretty soon, I was invited to join in those games and loved it. I mean, I just absolutely, uh, you know, I, I couldn't wait for the next game. It was it was very very exciting to me. Uh, but from there anyway, I I continued uh, to play poker over the years, and uh, by the time I got to college, I was pretty much making my monthly spending money playing in in dorm dorm room games, and um, and then after after college, I I started writing and was supporting myself uh, doing copy editing and proofreading. But I also became a member of this club, interestingly called the Players Club, although it wasn't, it wasn't a poker club, it was a theater club. Uh, but they had a poker game there, and it was uh, bigger stakes than I had, that I had ever played. Uh, you, could, you could win or lose um, up to uh, seven or $800 in a night. And the game was played on Mark Twain's poker table. Um, it wow. Was, it was really, it was quite something. It was a beautiful poker table. Later on, after I'd been a member of the club for, for several years, a new board took over 
and it was not the theater people. It was it was actually uh, lawyers and such, and they were very unhappy about the poker game going on there, and and they actually disassembled Mark Twain's poker table, sacrilege. I mean, it was it was this gorgeous table, and they 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 literally took it apart, and in protest, I and several other members of that game resigned from the club. And it was not long after that that I discovered uh, the Mayfair Club and started playing there in the 2-5 Baby No Limit game. And actually, now that I think about it, in fact, I don't even know if the 2-5 the game, I think they had a seven-card stud game. The 2-5 uh, game had not begun yet because this must have been in the 80s. And then I moved out of New York for a while. And when I got back to New York in the early 90s, I started playing at the Mayfair again, and by then they had No Limit again, and so so I was playing there, and uh, and I've kept I've kept my hand in the game ever, ever since. I mean, it's 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 pretty much been a a, uh, a nearly fifty year proposition. The Mayfair is where Brian Koppelman, one of the the writers of Rounders, played, right? That's right, that's right. And I I actually met Brian there prior to to them writing Rounders. And uh, he knew that I had written this book, Confessions of an Ivy League Bookie, and we became friends. And and uh, and then when they finished the script for uh, Rounders, they let me take a look at it. And uh, the funny thing is, I, I actually had been contemplating uh, writing a, a poker script myself. And the the thing that was holding me back was my my absolute conviction that. To, in order to get Hollywood to, to buy a script about poker, you'd really have to dumb it down and, you know, sort of make it palatable to, to a mainstream audience. And when they gave me rounders, I was knocked out because they hadn't done that. They had actually stayed very true to the game that we all knew. And, you know, I was amazingly impressed that they that they had the balls to do that. But not only that, that they managed to sell it and get it made into this iconic movie. Nate Fisher, the, the protagonist of The Only Way to Play It, plays poker in New York City, where you played, and where live poker is illegal. In the book, he doesn't go to Atlantic City or Foxwoods to play, although I think he does talk about having done so in the past. Why did you focus on these seedier underground games? I mean, one thing is that I knew those games incredibly well, but also to me it was just much more compelling. Uh, the games, the games that took place in in the underground clubs, were just full of life and characters, and and you know, and and the the fact that they were illegal sort of added to to the flavor and the romance. And so, as as something to write about, I thought that it made for a more compelling story. And, you know, Rounders, it had covered some of that territory and, and took place in, in the underground clubs, too. But the character of Nate is is so very different than the character that Matt Damon played, in, in large part because he's living a, a domestic life. He's married and has a child. And I really wanted to explore what that was like and how that affected somebody who, who had previously been free and clear, a single man about town with no responsibilities. I was very interested to to see 
what kind of pressures that would bring to bear on a character. One thing I really liked about the only way to play it, in contrast to most movies and books about poker, is that the hands feel real. They make perfect sense in the context of underground poker games played in New York in 2010 or 2011, when much of this book is set. Were these hands based on any you actually saw or played? No, not specifically. I, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> I've played a million poker hands, so I certainly have a, a large uh, supply and memory of, of hands to draw upon. Well, I, I mean, it, they, they feel to me in some cases like these are the worst bad beats of my life. Yeah, you know, I mean, there is one hand in particular, and and it actually, it doesn't happen this the same way. I I sort of transposed it to, not to give away any spoilers on the book, but but there is a big traumatic event that happens that that interrupts a crucial hand that that Nate is playing, and I did have a a very similar experience, although the specifics of it were were different, where I was playing a hand at uh, the Genoa Club on, on Houston Street. And I had what was pretty much the nut hand and all the money had gone in. And just as the hand was about to finish playing out and I was about to collect this, this very large pot, you know, probably three or $4,000, a disgruntled dealer who had been kicked out of the club <laughs> earlier that night came into the club came up to our table and flipped the table over oh man sending all the chips all the cards flying and and, and uh, it got worse from there i mean actually then then there was there was a there was a fight that happened after that a knife was drawn everyone ran out of the club and you know so i i not only I didn't get the money that I was going to win for that hand, but I never got the money back that I had in the game. Wow. So it was, it was, you know, it was a double loss. I, I did memorialize that hand. Uh, I did a short movie called Nikki's Game, which in many ways was, was the inspiration or, or this sort of, not the inspiration, but, but the, the first run of what became this novel. It was the first draft of what became this novel. Um, and we we made a short film. Uh, it starred John Ventimiglia, who was Artie Bucco in The Sopranos, mm. and, and it also uh, had um, uh, oh my God, I'm 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 blanking on his name, but he he played uh, he was in the in in uh, the Rocky movies. He was Paulie, uh, Rocky's brother, mm. uh, in those movies, and um, so that was so so we did we did that hand in that short film. As a poker player, Nate is talented but struggling. He has a wife and young daughter, as you mentioned, and he's finding it difficult to manage the underground poker lifestyle and the need to make more money than he did when he didn't have a kid. There's one moment in the book I found especially striking where Nate, as his marriage is foundering, says, to my surprise, there was something weirdly intoxicating about fucking up like this about life gone wrong. Is Nate's choice of career driven by self-destructive impulses, or is what he's feeling here something else? Yeah, I mean, you know, thematically, that has been something that I have written about ever since I, I started writing. There was a story I wrote in college 
about a guy riding a bus and there's and there's this character on the bus who's telling a story and the the character who's listening to the story is amused but feels like something is bad is going to happen that somehow this guy is going to do something to to screw up this this good feeling that he's generating he he just feels it very strongly and the, I wrote the line that there's a self-destructive streak in people that's very, very closely attached to the thing that that allows them to do good. Mm. And there's always the danger of it of it coming out. And I, I can't really say, you know, where that comes from, but it's definitely a theme of my writing. And, and that feeling of fucking up can feel in a in a weird way liberating i i just think you know in my own life there's so many things that that i feel conflicted about and sometimes it's i mean if you if you compare it to to playing poker it's the same thing that that if you're in a poker tournament sometimes the the urge to bust out to get away from the tension of what you're doing is is so great that you just do you you end up doing something you know incredibly stupid because you know that there will be relief if you bust out of the tournament for for me that the the way this resonates most in terms of my own poker playing is sometimes when i'm running a big bluff i'll i'll be thinking i'm out of line here i hope he punishes me for this you know i hope he calls and punishes me yeah, and uh, but but I think that it's it's intertwined with something good, which is that the willingness to run big bluffs in poker can be good against the right opponents. You need to have that in your bag of tricks. Absolutely, and of course, you know, I mean, the the thrill of, of running a, a big bluff is is knowing that you know if if you get caught, you're going down, <laughs> and and you know, there's nothing that gets your your heart racing like like that. You know that is that is the the attraction and the danger of of running a bluff. Right. It's also striking to me that that Nate's father is a problem gambler, and shortly after the passage I just read about him about Nate messing up his life, he looks in the mirror and notes that he looks more and more like his dad. What is the role of Nate's father in this book, and does that say something about why people gamble? Again, you know, this novel is is very, very much a fiction in, in that none of the events in it actually happened. And certainly my own father and my relationship with my dad was quite a bit different uh, in most ways than Nate's relationship with his father, Leo, in, in the novel. But where where there are similarities, it's my father was a writer, as I say, he was a playwright. And mostly I, I would characterize him in the end as a writer who never realized his his aspirations. He was he was not a successful writer in that he was never able to make a living off of it. And uh, he spent the last 35 years of his life working on a novel that he never finished. And so I always uh, looked at him and said, I can't go down that path. I can't let that happen to me. Hmm. And yet I did choose to, to go down that path in, in the sense that I chose to become a writer. 
so you know that i mean that's it's it's almost suicidal in in a sense to see a path that a parent is going down and and not doing it well and and following that path and yet there's also the chance to not only redeem that parent by succeeding but somehow you know become the the hero of your own life the other the other path i you know with my father that i did not want to follow was that he and my mother got divorced when i was uh, six years old and you know as any child of divorce can tell you it's probably the most traumatic thing that can can happen to a child even if and when in in the case of my parents it was an amicable divorce it's still very damaging and so i knew i I didn't want to ever go down that path i didn't want to get married and divorced and and you know visit that upon a, a a child uh so for for many many years i just avoided it by not getting married and i didn't get married until a very late age i got married at at 50 and uh you know now uh we're 15 years into marriage and it's you know it's a very good marriage and again it's you know in in the novel um there is a, there is a marriage that is a difficult marriage uh that has not been the case with my marriage so again that's that's fictional and the the wonderful thing about fiction is that you can explore things that you're afraid of you know that you don't necessarily want to go through or or have gone through but that you know are are po- always possible yeah uh, Nate's dad likes to tell the story of a parlay he nearly won at the horse track that would have paid a million a million dollars yeah. and Nate says I kept thinking about the story my dad told wondering why in his inebriated state he'd felt compelled to tell it although I actually knew why it was the holy grail of gamblers, the money that would have changed my life, end quote. And that struck me as profound, getting so close to winning big and not quite getting there. At casinos, for example, poker players love to talk about being one card away from a jackpot. In poker, how important is that feeling of getting tantalizingly close to a big score, but not quite getting there? Well, I, I think, you know, the if you've played the game for any length of time, at some point you probably have gotten close to one of those big scores and you know and and at the very least you've seen people who have gotten there who have gotten over the hump who have you know gotten lucky in the way that you may have wanted i you know i think that there there's there can be so little that that separates you from greatness in uh or perceived greatness in poker especially in you know in big tournaments you know, one hand that had it gone differently, you, you know, the, the the outcome would have been completely different. You might have won the tournament and instead you finished ninth or 200th. I mean, I in fact, I can, I played in, in uh, a seniors tournament uh, a few years ago and there was a hand that I played against a guy whose name I'm, I'm now blanking on, but he had ma- he had been at the final table of the main event the year before. And I had him covered and I, I had ace king and preflop he raised, I three bet and he called. 
and on the flop, which was 10 high, he shoved. Hmm. And I was, I'd say 95% certain that he had ace queen. And I, it was, it really came down to a money management situation where at the, at that time there were about 300 players left in the tournament. And I knew that if I folded in that spot, I still had plenty of chips and would, would make it pretty far. But if I called and was wrong, I would be in, in bad shape. And so I ended up folding, even though I was almost positive he had ace queen. And sure enough, he turned over his hand. He had ace queen, hmm. but I folded. So it would have it would have knocked him out of the tournament unless a queen came. And he went on Dennis Phillips. It was Dennis. Oh, yeah. From, yeah, from St. Louis. And, yeah. Yeah. From St. Louis. And and Dennis Phillips went on to finish fifth in that tournament for, I think, one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. <laughs> and I finished 45th for, I think, 13,000. But, you know, a hand like that, you know, it's 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 funny thing. I mean, I don't know. I might not have gone any further had I called him down there and won the hand. On the other hand, I might have. And, you know, and he certainly, he would have been out uh, $150,000. So I, I'm very well aware of how things can, you know, the turn of a card or a move made or not made can, can change everything. Should Nate keep playing poker? You know, so when I started writing this book, I, I didn't know where it was going to end. And and I didn't know what Nate's relationship with poker would be by the end. But as as I got there, I saw that for, for Nate, what was most important in his life was to be a good husband, father, and to be an artist. And... So, you know, where I leave him at, at Novel's End is, and, and again, you know, without without giving any spoilers, but but with those things being his priorities. And so in, in that sense, he's he's rethinking his life to some extent, which doesn't, you know, doesn't mean that poker isn't going to be a part of it, but uh, I think is placing it in, in you know, the emphasis in a, in a different part of his life. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's it was a, a real pleasure to, to, to read this uh, as someone who has struggled to find good works of, of fiction or movies about poker. It's fun to to read one that feels as real as this one does. Well, that's the, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, obviously, I hope uh, I hope lots of people read it. I've always found it uh, somewhat mystifying that there are so few really good poker novels out there you know there are there are a few uh and and i i certainly hope that that i've added to to the oeuvre i know you talked about this on the thinking poker podcast but what are what are some of those poker novels you like the most i would say you know the the poker uh pantheon of novels is uh consists of jesse may's uh shut up and deal um rick bennett's king of a small world 
it's it's funny. I just uh, I I just got a very nice Twitter uh, post the other day from um, Brandon Adams, mm. um, and I, I I actually had forgotten uh, his his uh, novel Broke, which I quite enjoyed. And then there's the Cincinnati Kid, and there's the Man with the Golden Arm, but you know there really they, there aren't a lot. It's kind of it's kind of odd because poker attracts so many literary types and and there's certainly a lot of good nonfiction books nonfiction narratives but uh, novels not not so many I wonder if that has something to do with poker being a world of secret knowledge of of things you know but keep to yourself and that may be attracting the kind of people who don't like spinning these tales to be laid out in public yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just can't answer it. It's, it's, it's one of those mysteries. But then, you know, poker in the end is, a, is about mystery. But again, that's, you know, that's why I think it, it's such a natural arena for uh, dramatic stories. I hope at any rate that, you know, somewhere out there, there's a, there's a young writer who will be inspired by my book the way I've been inspired by, by other books. Uh, and we'll we'll take it on and find a you know a, a, a new angle. Uh, Peter Olson is the author of The Only Way to Play It. Thanks for joining us on Third Man Walking. Thanks so much, Charlie. It is September twentieth. And I am in the greater San Diego area playing live poker for the first time in six months. It was hard to make a decision about when and how to come back. As I mentioned, I had access to a really good online private game for the first couple months of quarantine, but I don't have access to it anymore. And my understanding is that it's not really running all that frequently anymore anyway. Um, If I did have access to it, I would probably just stay at home and play that. I did since then get access to another private game, which is also good, but it's all PLO. And as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I'm still just learning the game and I don't feel very good at it yet. And yeah, I feel like I'm still very much in an experimental stage with that game. So for the past few months at home, I've been playing and studying a lot playing a lot of low stakes PLO, but in some ways I felt like I'm just spinning my wheels. I feel unproductive. Uh, I feel a little bit bored because I'm just at home all the time. And as I was looking at the situation with the virus, it became clear that there's just not going to be a single day when this is all going to be okay, when it's, it's going to be unambiguously fine to go back and play live poker again. It also became clear that California is no longer a sort of hotspot for the virus. So I started to look into ways I could return, and I thought about a couple of different options. I thought about going to Thunder Valley near Sacramento, where I've heard the games are quite good and which has a lot of 510. I also thought about going to Las Vegas. One of the drawbacks of those two places, though, is that they're playing inside and uh, it seems generally easier to get coronavirus if you're inside with a lot of people than if you're outside. Also, the Sacramento area has had 
a pretty nasty heat wave, uh, some fires that were nearby, and so on. So I decided to come to San Diego, and what's great about poker here right now is that it's outdoors. Uh, you're playing in a tent, and it's been pretty wonderful, honestly. The highs in the, the four days or so that I've been here have typically been around 84, and the lows at night have typically been around 60. So I just show up in a t-shirt and shorts. I, I have a hoodie in my car, but I haven't taken it out, and I've been comfortable all day. They're taking safety issues pretty seriously. They're making everyone wear masks. Players are being pretty good about that. There have been a couple times when a player has let their mask slip below their nose or something like that, and a dealer has immediately called them out for it, and they've been like, okay, and put their, their mask back over their, over their nose. They're doing temperature checks on the way into the casino. They're playing eight-handed instead of nine. They're using plexiglass dividers between players, and again, they're playing outside. One thing that's sort of weird is that they're still serving food, which obviously makes sense. If someone's playing a session, they don't want them going someplace else to get food once they're hungry. So you'll order food from a server who's walking around the tent and they'll go and put the order in. Then 20 minutes later, they'll come back and they'll say, hey, your food's ready. And then you have to go into the casino and go into this room where there are a bunch of, of trays and chairs set up in a socially distanced type way and you find your food and sit and eat it quietly. It's very strange. It's like taking the SAT or, or you're at the DMV together or something like that. But overall, it's been a great experience. There aren't a lot of bigger games here. The biggest game that's run, and it has run every day I've, I've been here, is 5-5 five, five, with buy-ins of $400 to $1,500. So a super deep 300 big blind structure. Great for me. I love it. And yeah, it's been fun to get back in the swing of things. I've run hot. I've made about $10,000 in four and a half days, which is a bunch for a $5 blind game. But the game is really deep and it's playing bigger than a 5-5 game typically would. I've run up some big stacks. Some players have noted at the table how lucky I've been, and I, I can't really deny that I've been lucky. I mean, there was one pot in particular where I had aces against another guy's kings, and there was a, a third action player in the hand, and it ran out in such a way that this guy could not have helped um, me stacking him. But for the most part, I feel like a lot of the luck has come in the form of people just being pretty generous to me when I've been in pots. So for example, this is a few days ago, a player under the gun one raised to $20, the cutoff in the small blind called, and I called in the big blind with pocket nines. So there were $75 in the pot and the flop came ace nine six with two hearts. It checked to the hijack, so not the preflop raiser, who bet 80 into 75. I called with middle set everyone else folded. There was 235 in the pot heading to the turn, which was an offsuit eight. I checked, he bet 300 into 235, leaving himself about 220 behind. 
So I went all in. He called with ace-jack offsuit, so just top pair, drawing dead. There were also pots where I kind of got coolered and got away paying almost nothing. There was one spot where I had ace-king of spades under the gun one. The hijack, who is an action player I know from Los Angeles, called and so did the small blind. The flop came 10-9-deuce, all red, so I had ace-king of spades for absolutely nothing. I checked and folded, and the action player turned up with pocket aces, and if he had raised pre-flop, we would have just played a very big pot that I would have lost. And then later that same day, I had pocket sixes in middle position and raised $20 in the small blind called. The flop came queen, 10, 9, rainbow. He checked and I checked. So there's $40 in the pot heading to the turn and it was a six giving me bottom set. So queen, 10, 9, 6. And my opponent checked again. So this guy did appear to be a recreational player, and I think when most recreational players check in this spot, they're unlikely to have anything too strong, but they can probably have, you know, a 10, a 9, maybe a jack for an open-ended straight draw, maybe a weak queen, something like that, queen queen 8 suited, queen 7 suited. So I bet $25 into 40, and this player called. Then the river was a king for a final board of queen, 10, 9, 6, king, completing a one-liner to a straight. He checked, and I checked it back, and he had king-jack offsuit, so he flopped the absolute nuts, didn't bet the turn, didn't raise the turn, and I lost $45 in the hand with a set. Yeah, so just lots of, of spots like that. I also found a lot of spots to bluff that I don't think I would have found playing live poker six months ago, and that I've been well-trained to find by playing a lot online over the past several months against tougher competition, where you get to take some pretty creative bluff lines against people you think are paying attention. Um, And I'm, I'm finding that they can be more effective than I previously probably imagined against the better players at this stake, because they just don't see people taking a lot of these bluff lines. So In this particular hand, I had had a really good day and had about $5,500 in front of me. The cutoff raised to $25, the button called, and I called in the big blind with Ace of Diamonds and an offsuit jack. So Ace Jack with the Ace of Diamonds. I think that three betting here would have been fine, uh, but I went for the call this time. So about $75 in the pot, the flop came King, Jack, three all diamonds, giving me middle pair, top kicker, the nut flush draw, and a blocker to the nut flush. So I checked, the cutoff bet $40, the button folded, and I called. The turn was an offsuit nine. I checked again, and now my opponent, who again I thought was sort of a a, a rag at this particular casino, bet $150 into $155. So I thought, this is interesting. He's betting $150 into $155 here almost the full size of the pot. He should not really be using this sizing unless he can account for the Ace of Diamonds, which he obviously can't because it's in my hand. So I thought about raising, and that was generally how I was going to approach this street if he bet twice. And then I kind of thought, well, you know, if he decides to check back the river, we can potentially win here with a pair of jacks with an Ace kicker. 
and just generally when he bets this big, we should mostly be calling rather than raising because he's representing ridiculous strength. I called. So the river was an offsuit eight for a final board of king, jack, three, nine, eight with the first three all diamonds. I checked, he bet $340 into $455. So another pretty big sizing. He had about 1500 or 1600 total. So I just moved all in, figuring my jack was no longer good enough to take to showdown and that he couldn't have the nuts. And he folded pretty quickly and claimed to have folded pocket jacks. So I think his sizing is kind of off um, on both the turn and the river with a hand like that. He says, you're, you're so lucky, you've, you've run so good, and I just folded a set of jacks, and, and I guess if, a, a moment of ego, I just told him what I had, and uh, he didn't believe me. Um, but yeah, ace-jack with the ace of diamonds. So yeah, I've run well, I've played pretty well, and I'm going to be here for another eight or nine days, and hopefully the good run continues. It's September 27th, and I'm wrapping up my trip to San Diego. I have one more night in the Airbnb, and I'm going to play a little bit tomorrow and then head home to L.A. We'll see how things go after that. I've heard rumors that a couple of the L.A. card rooms are about to set up for outdoor poker. And if that happens, then I'll just stay at home and go back to something pretty close to my normal routine, which would be amazing. Um, But if that doesn't happen, I'll probably spend a week or two back in L.A. and then come back here. So things have kind of slowed down a little bit here in San Diego. The games have not been quite as good as they were a week or so ago, and I haven't been running quite as good, but things are still going well. I have only had one losing day overall in the 11 or so days I've been here. Uh, Last few days before this one were not super interesting in terms of hands I could share, but I did want to go over one interesting spot from yesterday before talking through some hands that I played today. So in this hand from yesterday, there's a straddle on, there's a mandatory straddle on. So we're playing five, five, 10. I'm in the cutoff. I have ace of clubs, deuce of clubs and raised $35. The button calls and the straddle who is a South American pro I know from LA also calls. So there's about $110 in the flop. I have ace deuce of clubs and the flop somewhat unbelievably comes five, four, three with the four and three of clubs. So I flop a straight with a redraw to a flush, the nut flush, and also of course the straight flush. It checks to me. And I think if I had two recreational players in the hand, I would bet pretty big here, probably something like a hundred because when I have ace deuce, I don't block my opponents from having hands like pocket fives, pocket fours, pocket threes, six, five, five, four, four, three. Also, all of which are going to feel obliged to continue to abet 
pretty much regardless of what the size of that bet is. But with the South American pro in the hand, I want to keep things a little bit more reasonable and give him the chance to play back at me. So I bet $65, about two thirds of the pot or a little bit less. The button folds and the South American pro raises to $185. Now this is a point in the hand where I wasn't quite sure what to do. I think calling is sort of a traditional option that seems fine in that uh, when a good opponent races you on the flop and you've caught a strong hand, you mostly want them to keep betting. In this case, though, for the same reasons that betting on the flop big would have been good against two recreational players, we unblock hands like sets and also hands like 6-5. I think raising is worth considering. I think if I put in a third bet here, he is still going to have to continue with sets. Also, there's a lot of bad turn cards. So if I just call, I'm going to be in a pretty annoying spot if the board pairs or if the turn is, say, an offsuit seven or an offsuit six or an offsuit deuce. There's just a lot of bad things that can happen on the turn. So I benefit from getting more money into the pot now. And also, I think one of the more compelling reasons not to raise ace-deuce normally is that my opponent certainly could have 7-6, but when I have ace-deuce of clubs in particular, even that's not such a big deal since I can just get out of it with a flush. So I think this combo specifically benefits from putting in a third bet here. So I do, I think I raised to 440, he called, and the turn was an offsuit 10, so not one of those cards I was worried about. He checked, I moved in, and he folded. We were about 15 or 1600 effective to start the hand, so I shoved for about pot, and he folded. So, not an overly interesting session yesterday, generally, though. Played a lot more interesting hands today. It didn't look like today was going to be all that interesting. I played a four-bet pot with aces fairly early in the session that I won, and then sort of stumbled along for about six or seven hours with my profit ranging from like 200 to $500, like really not much. And then was able to string together a bunch of really interesting hands right at the end of the session. In the first of these, there was a straddle, there were two limps, then the cutoff, who is a pretty tight player, raised to $60. I was in the natural big blind, which is to say not the straddle, just the big blind, with pocket queens, and raised again to $270. It folded to the second limper who called, which is really strange. So this guy put in $10 and then called the $270, leaving himself with about $1,000 behind. The original raiser then folded. So there was about $600 in the pot heading to the flop, and I was already thinking, wow, this is strange, because this wasn't a crazy whale. This wasn't someone who's just sticking in $270 for no reason. In addition, when he did it, he sort of sat up straight and uh, knocked over his chips nervously, which made me, which reinforced my impression that he was probably pretty strong. So I sort of thought, I, what's going on here? Um, you know, could he have pocket aces or pocket kings that he has 
weirdly slow played twice? Could he have something like pocket jacks or pocket tens or ace king, which he was planning to maybe limp re-raise, but now doesn't know what to do when he's facing a three bet preflop? Could be any number of those things. And I thought, wow, this could get really weird if there's a board like 7-4 deuce rainbow and he has a thousand back and we start with $600. I guess we're just getting the money in, but it wouldn't surprise me if I end up losing a pretty big pot here. Fortunately, that didn't turn out to be a big problem because the flop came queen 8-5 rainbow. So I flopped top set. Pretty great spot to be in. And I thought there was no real reason to bet big. If I bet small, hopefully I give him an attractive price with something like pocket jacks or uh, say ace king suited with a backdoor flush draw. And if he has aces or kings, he's continuing and probably never folding anyway. So I bet $200 into about 600. I think I could maybe even go a little bit smaller, but I did bet 200, about a third of the pot and he folded, so don't know what he had. A bit later, and this it was not the most consequential hand, but I think it's interesting. I talked in the last session about finding interesting bluff spots. So finding bluffs that five, your typical 5-5 five, five player doesn't see happen very often. So traditionally at the $5 blind level, if there's a bluff, what it will often be is a preflop raiser, c-bets, and then maybe double barrels the turn and doesn't have much. That's one bluff that you see a decent amount at the $5 blind level. Another one is, you know, say you'll go four ways to the flop and the first three players will check and it'll come around to the last player to act on the flop and you'll see that player put in a bet a lot, either because they have something or because they just figure no one else is interested in the pot. Or you'll see a situation where it's say it goes four ways, it checks around on the flop, and then the first person to act on the turn ends up betting because they've seen the other three players check on the flop and it looks to them like those three players are weak. So those are a couple of spots where you'll often see bluffs at the $5 level. And it can be interesting to try to find others because if you have opponents who are paying attention which some players aren't. But if you, if you can find the ones who are paying attention, you can get away with some things because you found a spot to bluff that really does not look like a bluff. So in this hand, I have nine seven of diamonds in the cutoff and raised to $20 and both of the blinds call. So there's about $55 in the pot after the rake and the flop comes queen 10 five with one diamond. They both check, as I would expect, and I check. I don't think betting has much merit when you have these boards where there's two medium-high cards, like a queen and a 10, and you have two opponents who have called you preflop. Those are boards that generally hit them pretty hard, and I don't have much, so I just check. I'm planning to give up a lot. But the turn is the jack of diamonds, so now the board is queen, ten, five, jack with two diamonds, giving me a flush draw and a not very good straight draw. Again, I have nine, seven of diamonds. The small blind bets $35. The big blind calls, and I'm thinking, so I would like to continue in this hand, but I don't think 
calling is really that attractive. Even if I hit my flush, I could be beat. And when I'm not beat, it should be pretty obvious to both of my opponents that I can have a flush. I can hit a straight, but that straight easily might not be good. And again, even if it is good, it's going to be very hard to get paid. So if a, you know, a king comes on the river, I lose to any ace. If an eight comes on the river, it could be very obvious that I have a nine. So there's just not a lot of good things that happen, honestly, when I, when I call here. But if instead I raise, I can reap most of the benefits of calling. And also, I think, just take the pot down a lot because it should really look to both my opponents like I have ace-king. I'm the only player in the hand that can have ace-king because I raised preflop and they both just called. Ace-king is a hand I could very reasonably have checked on the flop with and then just, boom, made the nut straight. So I raised to $145 and they both full so i get away with one a bit there a bit later there's one limp and i look down at pocket tens ten of spades ten of diamonds on the button and raise to 25 dollars the small blind re-raises to 110 dollars and it folds back around to me he has about 900 dollars total I don't know a lot about this player, but I have not seen him 3-bet very much. At the same time, my hand is too good to fold, certainly also too weak to raise, so I think the only thing to do here is call, but I know that when I call here a lot, I'm just going to have to give up on a lot of flops, and I don't like that, but I don't see a great alternative. So I call, there's about $225 in the pot, and the flop comes 998 with two clubs. He bets $110 again, and I don't think this is one of those flops I can just fold on. I could certainly have the best hand. I think that if my opponent has ace-king, say, he's just going to be shutting down a lot on the turn, and I'll be able to take the pot with a small bet. This is also a board where I can turn straight draws on a seven or jack and potentially have some interesting things happen that way, even if I am beat right now. So I call. So there's now $445 in the pot and the turn is the 10 of hearts. So now there's two clubs, two hearts on the board and I have top full house. So suddenly this not very appealing situation has become amazing for me. My opponent checks, unfortunately. So I think when my opponent checks, he can certainly still have over pairs that are rightly a little bit scared of all the coordination on this board. He can also have ace-king and ace-queen that are now probably going to give up. And at this point, he only has about $700 behind. So I'm not sure there's much point in betting big with a hand this strong. So I bet $175 and he calls. So there's almost $800 in the pot heading to the river, which is an interesting card. It's an offsuit ace. So the final board is 998 with two clubs on the flop, 10 with two hearts on the turn, and an offsuit ace. And I have pocket tens. If he has kings through jacks, he should hate that card. 
He could also have a hand like Ace King of Clubs, Ace King of Hearts that has stuck around with a flush draw and have now backed into top pair. He can also have pocket aces, of course, in which case he's just getting all the monies. So the question is what size to bet here? I mean, I think going all in is the obvious route, but I don't know if it's the best one against a very weak range and against what would appear to be a recreational player. If he has something like pocket queens, I want to bet a size that he can make a crying call against. I also don't want to scare away an ace by going all in. So I think overall betting smaller here is better. I bet 200, which is a little bit over a quarter of the pot. And he does think about it for a while and call. I turn over my hand and obviously it's good. So I don't know what he had. The very next hand though renders all of that moot. I'm in the cutoff and pick up pocket queens. I raised it $20. And the button, who's the very same opponent, re-raises to $65 from a stack of about 325 total. It folds back to me. I think this guy is pretty likely to be tilted because of the last hand. And I think he is likely to call pretty light as well. I obviously have a hand that's more than good enough to go all in with anyway. So I do go all in. He calls. And the board runs out ace, ace, 10, blank, blank. I table my hand and it's good. So I had previously been up, like I said, 300 to $500. But after this string of hands, which comes within the span of about an hour, uh, I end up counting my stack and I'm up about $2,000 for the day. The game breaks shortly thereafter and uh, rack up and head home. So one more day in San Diego, and we'll see how it goes. Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking or via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.